to move away from a disease management model to a human management model. So instead of focusing on your disease, hypertension or whatever it is, we ought to be focusing on your dis-ease of life. And if we can solve that dis-ease of life and activate you, all your clinical issues will get better. Welcome to the Better Care Podcast, where we tell the stories of clinicians, healthcare leaders, and innovators who are improving the way clinicians work and deliver care. On today's episode, Evidence Care's Dr. Brian Fengler interviews Dr. Jordan Asher of Sentara Health. They discuss the success and shortcomings of innovative care delivery models, such as clinically integrated networks, ACOs, and value-based care overall, while also covering physician burnout digital health initiatives, and helpful leadership practices. This episode was recorded in front of a live virtual audience. Enjoy the conversation with Dr. Jordan Asher. Welcome to the Better Care Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Brian Fengler. I'm the co-founder and chief medical officer at Evidence Care. And on today's episode, I'm very excited to have Dr. Jordan Asher Jordan is the Executive Vice President and Chief Physician Executive at Sentara Health. Jordan, it's a pleasure to have you on today. Um, obviously, we go back about 10 years uh, when you were uh, at St. Thomas Health here in Nashville. A little bit about Jordan's background and in, in your distinguished career in medicine. Uh, Jordan obtained his medical degree from Vanderbilt University and also his training in internal medicine, uh, board certified in internal medicine with a focus on hypertension management. He was a physician executive for St. Thomas Health in Nashville for a number of years where he led the implementation and design of physician alignment strategies. Uh, he then served as the chief clinical officer for Ascension Care Management, uh, which is a subsidiary of Ascension, focusing on population health strategies and value-based care models. Uh, and now at Sentara, uh, Jordan's role focuses on creating high quality, equitable, in innovative models of care delivery, as well as providing national thought leadership directed towards the future of healthcare. Uh, so Jordan, uh, very excited to have you with us here today. Thank you for coming on the podcast. Oh, it, it's great to be here, Brian. And uh, we are getting older. We, we know each other longer than 10 years. So. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I think when you, uh, when you met me first, I was probably a, a baby doctor coming straight out of residency. You, 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 you absolutely were that, that down in Murfreesboro. So, uh, yeah, when we started working on residency programs together. That's right. Uh, so it was about 15, 17 years ago now. Yeah, probably true. Well, just to start things off here, Jordan, I, you know, I like to start off with uh, sort of um, people's backgrounds and tell us a little more, you know, where you grew up and, and what were some of the things in your early life that kind of influenced you to uh, pursue a career in medicine? Sure. Uh, I'm born and raised in Nashville. So, uh, and now I'm in, now I'm, uh, as you mentioned, I'm, I'm, I'm in Virginia, I'm in Virginia beach. Uh, my dad's a physician. So, you know, everyone says, what made you think about medicine? And I remember when I was about in second grade, we were sitting in assembly and the kid next to me said, what do you want to be when you grow up? I want to be whatever he said. And I said, Oh man, I have no idea. So I'm going to say the one thing that I only know is that I'm going to be a doctor. 
And uh, I guess I decided that, you know, I'm not going to change that. Um, I definitely uh, have had an interesting sort of journey into medicine because interestingly enough, I wasn't thinking about being a doctor, uh, but I decided to get, uh, I was really into theater in high school and college. And in fact, uh, that's what my minor's in. And so I finished uh, college. I was uh, waitlisted to medical schools and I had gotten a, a job in a theater in Atlanta. And I got to call from Vanderbilt and said, hey, we got a spot for you. Okay, should I get $400 a month uh, being an actor or should I go to medical school? Uh, so I made the decision. I could always act while being a doctor, but it's very hard to get an acting job playing a doctor. Uh, so I decided to take that route. Yeah. Uh, and so, you know, got your medical degree at Vanderbilt and, and did your internal medicine. You know, what sort of steered you uh, in all the specialties you could have gone into in medicine? What kind of led you into internal medicine? Uh, so a, a couple of funny things uh, are what got me into, into internal medicine. I had always uh, not believed in the adage you had to be top of your class. So I sort of did the math in my head. Okay, how much did I need to do okay? And then how much did I need to get an A? And I decided, no, nah, I'd rather go out. So when I went to Vanderbilt and went through and did fine, uh, I decided I wanted to do something that A, got me done as quick as I could. B, I really liked uh, the, the long-term issues and dealing with people on a human basis. Mm-hmm. Theater sort of was, how do I give you some happiness in life for a little while? And that really got my brain at the time was, what could I do that really allowed me to do that in the shortest amount of time? And that was internal medicine. And then from a hypertension standpoint, uh, I don't know if you know him, Dr. Mark Houston was my preceptor uh, where I did my uh, clinical work at Vanderbilt and really had an impact. And he had left Vanderbilt, went to St. Thomas and uh, joined St. Thomas Medical Group. And when I was out looking, he says, you trained underneath me, come be a hypertension guy. Mm-hmm. and work with me. And this was before there were, quote, hypertension specialists. And yeah. then all of a sudden, JNC6 came out and said, goes, you know, hypertension specialist. And I got grandfathered in. And it, it really uh, fit my need as an internist. And it was a little bit of a marketing, not ploy, but area to specialize in yeah. uh, that was really needed in the community and allowed me to to continue working chronically with people. Yeah. And so when you were with the St. Thomas Medical Group, you very quickly started getting involved in leadership and executive roles. Kind of what what steered you into that side of things and, and taking that leadership? Oh, it, it was definitely not by plan. Uh, so when I joined St. Thomas Medical Group, it was a large private group. Uh, okay. Within a year, like this was back in 93, within a year, like many practices at that time, it sold itself to the hospital, St. Thomas. And so I went from being an independent doc, a a newbie in a large group to a newbie in an employee group to which my older partners got a huge payout. Well, older members, they weren't my partners because I was a new guy. They got a huge payout. And of course, I didn't get much of anything because literally I just started four or five months ago. So I went from a private doc to being employed And so that was fine. Everything was working out. I was just going to be a doc and do my thing. 
and we were, we had a uh, and this gets into the digital and early informatics. Uh, we were sitting around a room at at a group meeting, and the medical director basically said, Clyde Heflin said, "Hey, the fire marshal came in and looked at our chart room and said we have to close down our chart room because we had charts piled to the ceiling. Therefore, we need to go paperless our chart list and go on an EMR." And this was mm-hmm. in 1996. And wow. I was a young whippersnapper. I raised my hand and said, Clyde, that's a dumb idea. Why not just get another chart room? And he says, good, Jordan, you're in charge. Uh, so I was in charge of implementing a EMR uh, back in 96, 97. And I was given two criteria. Number one, we had to go chartless. And number two, the doctors, my partners refused to touch the computer. Okay. <laughs> okay. Those were my, my, my yeah. fence posts for implementing an EMR. Uh, so went ahead and implemented an EMR that for whatever reason, uh, because of those two fence posts, we went chartless, didn't go paperless, uh, went chartless, killed a lot of trees in doing so, uh, really got some efficiencies. And uh, the docs at the very beginning didn't touch, didn't do any data entry. So I mm-hmm. had to be creative and figuring out how to implement that and do that because I was given those fence posts. And I think that's really important in whatever we'll talk about that you really have to make sure you define the problem you're trying to solve. Mm -hmm. And I very quickly learned during that interaction that I was given a problem to solve and I solved it within the constraints that I was given. And so I found that to be honest, I enjoyed that. So uh, one of three medical directors of the group at a time, and I sort of just kept going. I decided to go back to business school because I really enjoyed it, got my uh, business degree. And then our cardiologists, and I won't mention any names, came to us. This was five years into our 10-year deal. And I was medical director at that time, our sort of head of the triad, and uh, came to us and said, we want to leave the group. We're only getting 50% of our referrals from the internists within the group. And so we want to leave the group. And I said to them, if you leave the group, we're in breach of contract with the hospital and everything falls apart. Yeah. And they said, we don't care. And so Mm -hmm. I had to take us through a divestment process uh, that left, that basically allowed us to negotiate an out with the hospital to have enough money to uh, to restart a practice, and we made the cardiologist, you know, we worked out the deal because they were still partners even after the divestment, and so we had to work out a deal for them to break their partnership effectively. Yeah. It was a purchase services arrangement. And so got through that, got through other, tri- other trials and tribulations, and uh, three CEOs later, they came to me another five years, three CEOs later, said that purposefully, they came to me and said, hey, would you mind coming on board with us full time? I did this. I was the lead physician for the Cerner implementation, did a bunch of other mm-hmm. stuff. And they came to me and said, hey, uh, now that we've divisions, we've realized we need physician relationships. Would you come on board and figure out how to do physician alignment strategies? Uh, so came on board and did that with St. Thomas. And then in 2011, went to them and said, hey, I'm bored. And this was the beginning of population health. And so uh, Mike Schatzlein at the time said, okay, 
I'm going to let two of you go start a population health management company. And that mm-hmm. was back in the mission point days where we yeah. probably first met and for whatever reason was fairly successful at that and uh, had to decide what we were going to do with it. And Ascension decided saying, Hey, we're going to suck you up to the mothership and have you do this in lots of markets. And that's how Ascension care management came to be. And that's what I was doing until I got recruited to come here to Centera. So yeah. very circuitous sort of route into uh, what I would call wearing a suit from a leadership. And the best part is it's really been continuing how I thought as an internist, uh, taking care of more and more people as I go and really doing it in a way that's creative, that, that really creates new ways to take care of people. Same thing you're trying to do. Yep. And so, uh, and I know your story pretty well. It's a very similar type story, very different, but similar. And I really enjoy, even in the early days of hypertension, because it was a new field, I enjoy that creativity. I enjoy that challenge of starting something that hadn't been there before. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, I want to move into in a minute, you know, kind of what what brought you to Sentara. But uh, but before we do that, obviously, you brought up how, you know, you started an ACO in the Nashville market with St. Thomas called Mission Point. You went on to Ascension to do that in other regions around the country. You know, ACOs were all the, uh, you know, all the all the flavor of the month, you know, 10 years ago. Uh, do you think they've have they been successful? Uh, you know, looking back, you know, did we accomplish what we think we wanted to accomplish with ACOs? Yeah. So, so that, that, that's a great question. And uh, being a value-based care guy, and, and just for clarity of terms, I'd like to call it clinically integrated networks. ACOs mm-hmm. has sort of gotten on the government mm-hmm. connotation of Medicare shared savings program, pioneer program, all of those, yep. which I consider sort of a subtype of a CIN. So okay. uh, we can use the term ACO, but just for me, it's a broader, mm-hmm. I'm thinking about it a bit broader from clinically integrated networks, population health management companies, thinking about it from that perspective. I think when you look at value-based care, uh, the question is still out whether this is a successful way to shed costs or reduce costs. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think they have definitely delivered on the value equation of quality service divided by cost. Yes. Uh, has Medicare gotten as much savings out of it as I would like as a tax paying citizen? No. However, we also have to think about lots of other value-based care models and value-based payment models. And when you put them all together, I think it is successful. Instead of thinking of fee for service, you could think of fee for value and you define what value is and you pay on a a unit of value versus a unit of service. Then when you think about bundled payments, which I consider part of, uh, mm-hmm. to be honest, an ACO is just a bundle of lots of uh, smaller bundles. Okay. Yep. And, and so that's really what an ACO is. And bundles have been shown to be very cost effective from a Medicare standpoint. So I do believe it's a journey. The journey is uh, we started in 2011. So we're about 12 years on a journey and value-based care, maybe 15 years on a journey. Uh, and, and so I think it, we have learned a lot. We continue to learn a lot. I'm a three quarters full guy. So I do believe trying to create value, trying to create value 
payment models and care models is the right way. Very hard in our society when we think of health, if you and I went and gave a talk to a group of civics people Mm -hmm. and we said, everyone put your head down and I'm going to ask you a question, raise your hand. And I ask, a, you or I ask a very simple question, is basic health care a right or a privilege? Guess the number of hands that goes up for, for each side of that. 50-50. 50-50. Every single time. Yep. That's exactly right. 50-50 every single time, which means as a country, as a society, we have not agreed on is health, basic health care, is health care a right or a privilege? Now, interestingly, from a regulatory standpoint and a law standpoint, healthcare is a right mm-hmm. because I have to treat you when you show up in the ED. I don't have a choice. It's a right. Just like I don't, people don't like to hear about it, uh, education up until age 16 is a right because you have kids, right? Mm-hmm. What Absolutely. happens if you're not homeschooling them? What happens if they do not go to school at age any age below 16. You get a letter from the school and they uh, will come and take them to school. <laughs> and if you say, I can't make them go, they'll arrest you. Yeah. Right. All of a sudden you and I could go to jail. if our, so, so we've deemed education to effectively be a right, because if you break that right, you go to jail. Healthcare is, we haven't agreed on that as a society and therefore that that is always going to create this problem. Now, in fairness, our country was founded on individual rights to get out from underneath the tyranny of King George and based on liberty, just, you know, freedom and the pursuit of happiness. And so when we think about health and healthcare as a right and a public issue, and then we are sort of founded as a society on individualism, it creates this friction. And that friction is always going to be there. And so we have, we're always going to be managing the polarity of these dynamics. And so when you ask, has it succeeded or not, to me is, is, is a tough question versus how, are we managing the complexity of those two dynamics, polarity management? Yeah. Because if I asked you, what does two plus two equal? You're going to say four. There are no other correct answers. If I said, how many ways are there to get to the number eight with whole integers? You're going to say five, two numbers. You're going to say five, zero plus eight, one plus seven. They're all correct answers. They're not dependent on each other. However, if I asked you what's more important to live, inspiration or expiration, what are you going to say? Hmm. Inspiration. Right. Okay. Hold your breath and I'll get back to you in five minutes. Right. Yeah. It, it doesn't work. And the problem is I asked you the wrong question yeah. because you've got inspiration and expiration that go in opposite directions. They are both important and they're interdependent on each other. Because you can't hold your breath and die because you will start breathing. So the yeah. real question should be, how do we manage the complexity of inspiration and expiration? not which one is more important. And so when you think about healthcare and we think about, let's just say quality and cost, we tend to think of them as polar opposites. And we try to say, which one is more important? Individualism or societal good? How should we do it? That's the wrong question. The, right, the correct question is, hey, 
They're both important. They're interdependent on each other. We're going to have to do both. How do we manage it as best we can? And so I do believe value-based care is doing exactly that uh, within all of those complex, all of those complexities. Is it working or not working? I think it's the wrong, a little bit the wrong question. For me, it's, is what we're doing beginning to manage that polarity? And I think the answer there is yes. Yeah. You know, moving on to sort of how you got at Centera, um, you know, obviously in a very prominent role at Ascension, um, but but left to go to Centera five to six years ago. You know, just curious as to, you know, what kind of attracted you to the organization? What about, you know, the mission or vision or values of the organization that resonated with you? Yes. Yeah, so Centera's so mission is to improve health every day which really okay. resonated. And remember, Ascension, for, for everyone that's watching, is Catholic healthcare. I cannot say enough good things about Ascension, okay? Uh, St. Thomas, they have really helped me be who I am as a human being. Uh, I'm the best Jewish Catholic boy you've ever met, right? So, <laughs> uh, but, but really, really have a mission uh, for helping the poor and vulnerable and, and really help me be just a, a, a different person. I'm not going to say better or worse, different. And so I cannot say enough good things. Sentara, who has a mission of, of to improve health every day, uh, is a great organization that has delivered incredible, had to, that I knew about, had delivered incredible quality, has an incredibly strong provider arm, has an incredibly good insurance arm, has a C, had a has a CIN has had all the sort of a true IDN integrated delivery network. Okay, mm-hmm. really had all the pieces and was in a regional area, and so it and the opportunity was say Jordan, hey, we need to put all this together in a way that really creates value for people, mm-hmm. right? And so it was a really an opportunity to look at an organization and work with an organization that really had all the puzzle pieces and put it together. And the one thing I did learn working for a national healthcare system is national healthcare is really hard (laughs) to pull Mm -hmm. off. Mm -hmm. Uh, It it really is more of a local or regional situation. And therefore I said, okay, can I continue on my own personal mission, what I'm trying to do? in a model where I might be able to make a bigger impact. And so philosophically, that was the real attraction uh, to Centera. A, its mission, B, what it was trying to do, and C, the people, obviously, uh, because it was a big change for me. I'd been born and raised in Nashville, been there my whole career with the same Mm -hmm. organization, just like I thought early on, I was just gonna be a doctor, but I ended up getting into administration I never thought I'd leave Ascension. I mean, I yeah. just, you know, I started with St. Thomas, second year of medical school on a rotation. Never thought I'd leave that organization overall. Obviously, I'm a spiritual person. That was not in the plans for me. Hmm. Uh, and it's been it's been a wonderful experience taking my own personal mission, how I view the world, and working with a very forward-looking organization that had done a lot of a lot of the pieces really well. And now how do we, how do we work together to really move it to the next level for those we serve? That's great. 
Jordan, uh, so zoom back a little bit and uh, don't want you to give away any proprietary Sentara information or anything, but as you look across the hand, landscape of healthcare today, you know, what what would you put on the list as sort of the top, you know, three to five priorities that health systems are trying to tackle right now? Uh, so priorities that they're trying to tackle right now uh, are, I'm going to put them into sort of acute, middle, and long term, Okay. Okay. The acute issue is really uh, how to deal with the whiplash of COVID and now uh, labor. I mean, as simple as that. So we, we spent two years surviving and getting through and getting through a pandemic uh, that really was tough. Forget, forget, forget the politics of it. From a clinical standpoint, it was really tough. Mm-hmm. It was really, really tough for a long period of time. Get, get through that and really have the headwinds that we, that, that we now see. And it's really all around labor. Uh, and I'm not sure those two issues are not tied together. And, and it's not that we can't, uh, and we're doing better than most, but it's just that the workforce has changed. And so that, that, that's the short term. The midterm is when you think about COVID really sped up how people view their lives and lots of different things. And so the move to more of a consumer centric model has really picked up speed. And then long term, to be real honest, there's a lot of money out there that's chasing a six trillion dollar industry coming at any anyone who is in that industry, and which is I'm not saying is good or bad. So the landscape is really real, has really changed. And then luckily, uh, Sentara has a, a, because it is a true IDN and is much more diverse uh, than just being a pure hospital system or a pure payer. Uh, You could think of it as portfolio diversification, which really allows us to think about things in a much longer time horizon. And I think you will agree with this in, in what you are doing. Healthcare does not move quickly, mm-hmm. does not make decisions quickly. It does <laughs> not embrace technology well. Uh, we're the only industry where technology has, in fact, risen costs to a big portion. We just haven't solved it yet. And I think it gets back to a lot of that polarity. And then from a regulatory standpoint, we're a highly regulated industry, not saying good or bad. Uh, so I think that's what health systems are really uh, wrestling with both short term, sort of midterm, and then long term. That long term is going to be who are we going to be when we grow up? And is the world really going to change where we have to grow up? Mm-hmm. Well, a couple of questions that came in here um, through social channels. Um, how do you encourage clinical leadership to stay connected with the front lines of care and, and, and the needs of the providers? Uh, I think in, in lots of ways. And so this question is usually in the form is, do you still see patients, right? You still know what the frontline people do. And the answer is only for people that continue to call me from Nashville or other places that I've taken care of in the past. So no, I'm not actively seeing patients anymore, though I am licensed because I still have people that, that, uh, that call me. It really is. And and this is true of any leadership. Okay. In, In fact, uh, I was talking to someone this morning before this conference I'm at of saying, you know, yes, when I spent some time in one of our EDs volunteering and they didn't know who I was. So it's really 
how do you make sure as a leader that you are getting the information you need, but making sure that you participate? So obviously as leaders, we round in our hospitals. However, if you call, if you tell them, hey, I'm coming in three days to round, you know, it's like the red carpet roll out. You really don't learn a lot. Mm-hmm. Right. And so it's more showing, hey, showing up and saying, let's go round and creating an environment where, where we can learn. Uh, and it, it's truly a leader. To me, it's more of a leadership question uh, for any leader that is running a business business. Uh, I'm not a big quoter of others. But Jeff Bezos, I think, said it really well when he said, well, when someone said in the intro to his book, you have to understand the physics of your business. And in order to understand the physics of your business, you have to stay uh, in tune with that. Now, I think the better question, and I'm going to go ahead and ask the question a different way, is how do you encourage clinical leadership to stay connected with the front lines of care from the person's standpoint? Is in reality, the question really is, what Jordan, what are you doing to understand the people you are serving? I've just answered to understand those that are serving and how to make sure clinical leaders continue to understand that side. I think a big question and a very important question is, what are we doing as clinical leaders and clinicians and healthcare ecosystem leaders to understand our consumer because mm-hmm. healthcare has been very interesting. If you think about economics and supply versus demand, we're a supply sided model, which means we do what we believe is in the best interest for you as it works from our supply side. We're not a demand driven model. And to, to the question you asked earlier, what are some of our long-term issues is that we have to think about ourselves more of a demand-driven model. So I love the question, but I like expanding it to to really ask, Mm -hmm. what is everybody doing to think about that perspective as as clinical leaders? So in in your role as chief physician executive, you know, you obviously wear many hats or involved with many different things. What is it that has you most excited right now? Like, what is it that you see as like, this is the big opportunity right now? Uh, well, well, those are two different questions, right? Sorry, sometimes, start with uh, the first one. The, the greatest opportunity is not what excites you. Um, yeah, all right. So what excites you right now that, the that most? We really, and, and I'm a positive guy, that we really have an opportunity to change, to help people live their lives in the manner in which they want to live them and be healthy at the same time. I, mm-hmm. I'm not giving up that aspiration. Uh, and so I, what's exciting is that it is still in such a place that we have lots of opportunity to make it better. So Mm -hmm. if, you know, everyone complains about everything so broke, I don't like to think about it that way. I like to think about it as a narrative of success. We can be incredibly successful because one could say, because it is so broken, right? So uh, I I really think about it within that context. So everything excites me. Uh, The, you know, biggest challenges and opportunities right now are really how do you get people to think differently? My favorite quote is a mind stretched by a new idea never returns to its original shape. And so it, it, for, for me, it's real. And this is why I appreciate these conversations. It's really about how do you just get people thinking differently 
not necessarily changing them to a different way of thought, but thinking differently. And the only way to do that is to pose conundrums or polarities and talk through it and work through it. That That's what excites me as well. Okay. You're at a, for those who don't know, you're at a um, population health conference right now and, um, you know, just gave one of the, um, the keynote talks. Uh, so what, what are some of the opportunities, you know, in, in population health? Where do you see uh, the most opportunity maybe um, in, in that uh, area? Yeah, the, the most opportunity for, for me, and this is going to sound a little odd, is to move away from a disease management model to a human management model. Uh, Mm -hmm. I am all about activation, personal activation. You know, I've got plenty of patients who I said, smoking is bad for you, you ought to quit. And they go, "Ah, I could have had a V8. And, And it's, so I think we are way too focused on physiologic conditions versus human conditions. So instead of focusing on your disease, hypertension or whatever it is, we ought to be focusing on your dis-ease of life. And if we can solve that dis-ease of life and activate you, all your clinical issues will get better. The ones that can get better, right? I mean, yeah. there's certain things that are just not going to change. And, and so that's where I think our real opportunity is, is to think about behavioral sciences, social anthropology, and layer that into what we have historically done as clinicians in the medical profession and think about it very differently and and think about how do I activate you within the context of your diseases of life? And that I think will have the biggest impact. So I think population health is really about that versus public health, which is very, which is very different, which is very much focused on uh, how do I, figure out what's going on at a community level uh, and how do I really think about prevention from a public standpoint. To me, population health is a little bit public health on an individual level within the context of their life. And through that, you know, um, obviously Evidence Care is a digital health company, but, you know, sort of being vendor agnostic, you know, what are some of the more interesting digital health solutions that you've come across and, and how do you see digital health being enablers of all the, you know, opportunities that we have in healthcare. Yeah. And I sort of put it in three categories and I'm going to try to remember all three. Number <laughs> one, uh, and one of them, and I'm not putting them in any order is how, how does digital help me do my job better? Mm-hmm. Okay. Whoever the me is. Yep. Okay. Number two is how does digital help me help you help yourself? And then number three is to that activation. How does digital really help me act, activate you? Psychographic testing, matching, doing all those type of things. Uh, and, and so an example is predictive AI versus prescriptive AI. Mm-hmm. And I'm not real big on predictive AI because it's the best predictor is still to ask the doctor, who do you think is going to live for a year? Okay. It, that still hasn't been beat. Uh, however, helping and what patients uh, and what the patient zip code is, right? Yeah, uh, <laughs> and, and what their income is, right? So, so, so helping me do that, in fact, I, I could argue makes things worse. Okay. However, predictive help, meaning Jordan, you have a person that has this. Here's all the information and knowledge that 
other people have done in similar situations. And here's the one that, that works. And here's what you should do next. Because mm-hmm. then it's making me smarter. It's not telling me who I should care about, which is important. Don't get me wrong. It's telling me how to get smarter and how to do something differently. So that's really that first category, how to help me. Now, obviously, for, uh, as using evidence care as an example, how do you make my work better? How, how do you add, uh, so all that's important. And to the second one, uh, I think digital health, and, and I'm going to put technology a little bit broader, is I am very interested in, for instance, what had the biggest impact on, on family practice office visits, internal medicine and uh, office visits years ago? You, this is my favorite game. Guess what Jordan's thinking? Yeah. <laughs> How did you used to get diagnosed for being pregnant? Home pregnancy tests. No. Before, you see, you're young. Before yeah. home pregnancy <laughs> tests, you used to have come see me. Yeah, yeah. And now you, you diagnose, you know, pregnancy is really not a diagnosis, but you diagnose pregnancy with a home pregnancy test. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, when, you, when you and I first talked years and years ago, what excited me around what you were doing was that concept of how do I help you be smarter? Mm-hmm. And we even talked, I believe, how this could be a consumer facing situation, which is how do I help you take care of yourself? Yep. That, that was a, a founding idea that you were thinking about. Absolutely. You know, shift gears a little bit. You blog regularly at uh, your blog, the uh, the Positive Contrarian. Um, we'll post the link in the notes here for those who uh, who haven't visited that yet. Um, what was your inspiration for that? Yeah, so uh, my inspiration for that is I, I've done a lot uh, research things. I'm an awful writer. Okay, I don't like writing. Okay, and so. I would keep just a list of things in my a list of papers I needed to write in my desk. Okay. Mm -hmm. And it just got huge and I just could not get myself to doing it. And so I was working with uh, my marketing people at mission point and said, and we were working on thought leadership and I, and they said, Jordan, you've got so much that you've done and that you could write about. Why don't you write? And I said, I hate writing. And one of my people suggested saying, what about in a blog format? It's 500 words. Mm-hmm. It's easier to do. You don't have to do a lot of the stuff you don't like on the research side, so on and so forth. And so that that's what got me to the blog model. Uh, I'm still not a good writer, but my wife is an, an Jody is an incredible editor. Uh, so <laughs> it's real. And if you looked on her LinkedIn site, it says, professional editor because he's editing my, you know, so it, it, very much a team effort. And that's been something I've been a, able to, uh, able to do. And, and I called it the positive contrarian because as I talked about earlier, I like to set up the, the, the way for things to change as by creating that polarity, not necessarily contrarian, but I want to do it in a positive way. Uh, I really want to set other people up because I truly believe for everyone to make a difference, we all got to begin to think differently. So how do I use uh, that venue of blogging as a way just to get people to think about something differently, do it in a way that I can do and a frequency that that, that, that works. And that's why I ended up call, calling it the positive contrary. 
in one of your posts, um, you talked about an Australian study that gave clinicians reports on how their imaging utilization compared to their peers. And what they saw was decreased utilization across the board. Do you think we're doing that well enough in the United States uh, in terms of giving clinicians feedback on where their utilization compares to their peers? See, no. Okay. And great one you brought up because who sent that letter from, from the Australian being a more socialized was the chief medical officer of the health system, uh, of the government health system. Yeah. We get that information in our world as clinicians, but who do we get it from? Hospital administrators or um, or, Medicare claims. We, We get it from payers. Yeah. Right. Or we get it from hospital administrators, right? Because it's around their business. This is where we have fallen down immensely in our medical societies. Because our medical societies fight amongst themselves and also give guidelines versus taking a stance. Yeah. And I think we have done ourselves a huge disservice using hypertension. Do you know how many different hypertension guidelines there are from different medical societies? About right. 20. As yeah. a clinician, how am I supposed to do, do that? And they're all guidelines. They're not statements saying, Jordan, you should do this. You should monitor yourself this way. And if you don't do it this way, I'm just making this up. You should cut off your left pinky, right? Okay. I'm just being contrarian on purpose. But okay. um, I think that has been a huge disservice and I would argue it's because we, we, we have lost the definition of professionalism, of being a professional, which is, in my mind, two things. How do I do something as a group to better others? And how do I self-police? How do you self-police? Mm-hmm. That is truly the definition of a profession. And whether it be our specialty societies, whether it be our national medical societies, whether it be, shoot, in Tennessee, SVMIC, our Mm -hmm. our insurance mutual, we have not used those as venues for true professionalism versus, and I hate to say it this way, and I'm doing it on purpose, trade protection. And and so I think, uh, you know, know, the reason why I use that story from health affairs was to not only comment on people do change, but who was driving that? Because, you know, because if you set up a model where I've got someone that I should be listening to, I value their opinion. It helps me. I might change. My, I might change when I get that information because you yeah. and I were trained by an N of one, mm-hmm. you know, to ever trained us. We were not trained by by vast knowledge. And so I don't know if that answered your question or got me off yeah, on no. different pathways, uh, but that's uh, that's part of why I thought it was successful there. A, their healthcare models is different. B, it was fairly specific. And C, of who it came from. Yeah. Well, my last question here, Jordan, before we wrap things up, and this is another one that came in through um, through LinkedIn, is sort of how do we strike the balance of Physicians are burned out. They are sort of at the point where uh, many health systems, I think, are scared that if they push even a little bit, that they're going to face backlash, that they're going to have physicians leave the organization, while at the same time, 
from an organizational perspective, we know that there's initiatives and, and tools and, and efforts that we need to put into place that can improve patient outcomes, that can improve cost of care. You know, how do you how do you strike that balance? Yeah, and it gets back to my clarity conversation. So first of mm-hmm. all, I think we have to dig into physician burnout, okay? And I'm going to take a little bit of a contrarian stance. I think we have done ourselves a huge disservice in our training and how we think about things. You and I were trained to diagnose and treat in order to prevent death. Yep. How often do we fail? Occasionally. Well, in my world as an internist, I ultimately fail 100% of the time. Yeah. Okay. As an ED doc, they get to go out the door. You feel good. And so that creates, you know, a, a good positive feeling. So I have been in a, as a servant, because we are servants, I have been put in a mental situation where I fail 100% of the time. And that's because we have defined success wrong. Success is really, how do I give you life in a way that works for you versus just creating a state of non-death, which is the opposite of death, which I'm going to fail at. Yep. Okay. So one of my favorite books was, I think it was called When Breath Becomes Air. Uh, 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 I, I'm not sure of the title, but around a neurosurgeon that had cancer. One of the, the key lines in there is that doctors need hope too. And we, because of how we train ourselves uh, and how we think about things, hope is very hard because of what I just talked about. And on top of that, and COVID pointed this out, we created a hero. We've got a hero complex. And heroes are, A, they ultimately fail, and they are incredibly lonely. Mm-hmm. And, and I think we really need to think about that as we think about burnout, are those human, human dynamics. And then th- there are some other things that I truly agree with that people talk about is how do I make your life easier? And that's at all levels, whether you're talking about EMR and data entry, and, and I talked about that earlier, whether you talk about regulatory, whether you talk about everything, it, it's just we, we need to focus on that. And some of that is gets back to your question around digital is as an internist, I did a bunch of stuff that I should never have been doing. Dietary counseling. I suck at it. Not what I want to be doing incredibly important in hypertension and I got held accountable for it when our model is set up where I shouldn't be doing that. I'm the worst person to be doing that. And so therefore, how do we also begin to in prime? And when you talk to specialists and you ask them how much of what you are seeing, you don't need to be seeing. And they'll say a very large percentage, which creates their burnout. Right. And then they say, well, primary care should be doing it. But you go to a primary care doc and you say, how much of what you're doing, you shouldn't be doing? 30 to 40%. And that's both everything from documentation to what you're seeing. So we need to begin to decouple primary care services and primary care physicians and figure out how you do both. That will maybe free up the time and that feeling of I'm doing something which is then I do have 
time and ability to work up that back pain a little bit versus just sending immediately to the orthopedist who yeah. sees that person going, I don't need to see you. You don't need surgery. Mm-hmm. And so it, it, we've got to, it's a systems issue and we got to do systems thinking uh, to, to, to deal with, with the burnout issue. Uh, and that systems thinking is both operational systems thinking, clinical systems thinking, but also behavioral systems thinking. Love it. Well, Jordan, uh, thank you so much for joining us today. Obviously, you and I could, uh, you know, go on for two, three hours. Um, but well, I want to thank you for, you know, taking time away from the conference that you're at to speak with us today. Um, obviously, folks can find your blog at the Positive Contrarian. Um, any other uh, places where folks can find you? Through uh, LinkedIn. Uh, I look at my LinkedIn okay. a lot and uh, I get messages and I do look at them. I don't always respond, uh, but that's not because I didn't see it because I just didn't like the question or didn't want to deal with it. Yeah. So, uh, but, but that's probably the best way to get hold of it. Great. Uh, well, thank you again for joining us today and uh, good seeing you. Great to see you. Okay. And thanks for everything you're doing. Thank you so much. Bye. Bye-bye.